All right, if you want to open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, we continue our journey through the gospel of according to Luke. Uh, this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 20, we're actually going to look at, I think, five different little stories or accounts, but hopefully you'll be able to see how they all flow together. And our main idea this morning that we'll hopefully you'll see um, as we read through it and talk about it, you'll see that Jesus puts everyone in their rightful place. Jesus puts everyone in their rightful place. Whoever he comes into contact with in our text this morning, he puts them in their rightful place. And that even includes himself. So Luke chapter 20, we're going to read a section and talk and read another section and talk. We'll go all the way through chapter 21 verse 4 just in case you're wondering where all we are going to be at this morning. So Luke chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 19. Luke 20, 19. Everyone thinks back to 2019 and says, oh, what a great year. (laughs) 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 So with that in mind, maybe that'll give you a good, a good fun, fond memories and uh, put us off on the right foot this morning. Luke 20, verse 19. I'll read through verse 26. It says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So, this if you're familiar at all with the Gospels, if you've read through them, if you've heard some of these stories, you're probably not unfamiliar with an encounter like this, where someone tries to put Jesus to the test, and they end up kind of falling flat on their face, more or less, or just being proven to be in the wrong in some capacity. For the scribes and the chief priests, they're shown for their, their craftiness, as it says in our text, or their duplicity in verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness. He, Jesus knows what's going on. You can't fool him. And the reason why the scribes and the chief priests are so upset with Jesus at this moment in time particularly is because Jesus has just told a parable about them that shows them to be frauds, that shows them to be illegitimate owners or runners of what God has put under their care. They are servants and stewards of things, of people, of ideas, of a way of living, of a way of teaching people how to relate to God, and their stewardship is shown to be false. Their stewardship is shown to be a sham. And so they're upset because Jesus tells this parable, and you find this parable, we read it last week, starting in 
verse 9 of chapter 20 of the wicked tenants. And let, let's just read through it and you can catch a glimpse. I'll point out a couple of things that I didn't point out last week. You catch a glimpse of exactly why they're so upset. Verse 9, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Okay, so the picture is God has planted Israel. The vineyard is Israel. God is the man in this story. The tenants are the leaders, especially the religious leaders, the scribes, the chief priests. This is who Jesus is relaying. So God has planted Israel. God has created this world and he has put in this world a particular place, a vineyard, a place where all people should be able to come and see the light of the glory of God. See how God has blessed his people. See how God has given his people a rule and a reign and a place. And these stewards um, are given control of it. Verse 10, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. A servant would be a prophet in our story. So he sends a prophet to Israel. He sends a prophet to the religious leaders and he says, give me what I'm due. Show me that you are walking in my ways. Show me that you are taking care of this vineyard and producing fruit in it that's supposed to be produced in it. And uh, a couple years ago, we were going through the first several chapters of Isaiah. And if you recollect, which I don't necessarily expect you to, but in Isaiah chapter 5, it's this explicit talk this imagery that God is giving to Isaiah of Israel being a vineyard. This is not a new idea. Whenever Jesus tells this parable, these scribes and these chief priests would automatically know what he's talking about. This is not a veiled attempt at trying to describe this, the current situation. This is as open and honest as you can get without saying the dude's name standing right in front of you. I mean, you're saying this is who you are. This is what is happening in our midst. And they would have recognized this. And in Isaiah chapter 5 that I referenced, it's not good because what happens is God has planted this vineyard and what happens when he comes to see what fruit is being produced, there are wild grapes. And that idea of wild grapes is they have served other gods. They have done Everything except for what God has expected them and told them to do. God says, worship me and worship me alone. Don't put yourself on a pedestal, but recognize me for who I am, what I have given to you, who I am as your creator. It's the one who has made you this nation. Though you are the least of all the nations, I have chosen you. This is what he is talking about. This is what God is expecting from his people and so then he sends a prophet and says, turn back to me. And the people, the tenants say, no, no thanks. All right, keep reading. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, a prophet to Israel, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. You can, it, it doesn't take long to read through the Old Testament to see how God's people, once they are in the promised land especially, treat the prophets of God. It's not good. None of them are accepted. 
I'm not sure a single one of them is rightly accepted as being a prophet of God. And it's because usually the people in authority, whether it's the king or religious leaders, are content with the way in which they're currently living. They don't want to change. They don't want things to be any different. And so whenever they hear a word from God, they say, I don't want to hear that. And so the guy who's giving the word of God, the prophets, they beat and send away. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, another prophet, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, God says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So Jesus in the parable is saying, religious leaders, you are so concerned with trying to keep yourself on the top of the power chain or the structure that you have built that you will do anything to continue to possess that power or to acquire as much power as you can. I mean, this is a, a condemnation of Jesus towards the scribes, the chief priests, the religious leaders in Jesus' time, the people who were running the temple, where he's telling these stories, where he's teaching these things. Verse 15, And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What, when will, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus puts everyone in their rightful place because Jesus is the cornerstone. Because Jesus has the authority. And one of the ways that you can see that Jesus does have the authority is because he has wisdom beyond any of these religious leaders. They come up with the craftiest question that they can to try and trap Jesus. So back to our original text this morning, verses 19 through 26. They pretended to be sincere, and so they asked him this question in verse 21. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, I mean, come on, talk about lying through your teeth. They... They don't really believe any of those things. They're just trying to butter him up. They're trying to say, hey, 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 listen, Jesus. Hey, you're the man. Hey, you know, you know what you're talking about. And so if you know what you're talking about, then answer this question. I mean, that's really how they're doing it. But they're trying to do it with a show of sincerity. And so what do they say? Verse 22, the question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So they think they've got Jesus trapped here. So if you don't know why they think they've got Jesus trapped, um, I don't blame you. But what they're trying to do is kind of, you know, it's the whole between a rock and a hard place or they've got two different horns. And so they stick Jesus between two horns. So they think if he has goes off to either side, he's going to be pricked. So the two horns are 
when this question is asked, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? If it's lawful to give tribute to Caesar, then the public opinion of Jesus is going to go down. And that's really what they want to happen. They want the public opinion of Jesus to go down so that their own opinion in the public's eye goes back up. They don't want Jesus to be on par or above in the eye of the public from where they are. They have seen how Jesus has come into the temple and he teaches the gospel and the people are hanging on all of his words. They're saying, this guy knows what he's talking about. It's amazing how this guy is speaking. It's like he's speaking to me. It's like I can understand what he's saying. And all these things that he says are truth. I can see it from God's word. I can see it from how he is speaking about how the world operates, how God has designed us as humans. All these things make sense to me. I'm listening to Jesus and I get it. And the religious leaders say, whoa, 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 this is not okay. Not only is he taking our spot and taking the spotlight, but he is now calling us out even. He's trying to put us down. And so what we want to do is we want to lower his view in the public side. And so if Jesus says it's lawful to give tribute to Caesar, everyone in there, everyone listening to this question, everyone anywhere around the temple complex, good Jews would have hated paying this tax to Caesar, this poll tax. They hated it. All of them hated it. None of them. I mean, how many of you want to pay your taxes? How many of you like freely say, oh, I would rather give my money to the government than decide myself what to do with it. There aren't many people, and probably not any in this room, who would say that. I would rather the government decide what happens with all of my money than for me to decide what happens with it. I'm not sure anyone is going to be like that. So if we can understand that, then we can understand where Jesus has put it in a position of difficulty with the crowd. Because if he says, hey, pay your taxes, you should rightfully pay your taxes, then the people are going to say, we hate paying those taxes. Come on, Jesus, give us something better to go off of. Because the public opinion is easily swayed. It can take just one word, even though the people have been hanging on Jesus' words, it can take just one word that sits just slightly against them, just kind of rubs them the wrong way. And all of a sudden, maybe they will start not liking Jesus. And so that's what these religious leaders are hoping for on one side. On the other side, the other difficult, the other horn, as I said, is this idea that if Jesus says it's not lawful to give Caesar what's due to him, then the authorities, the religious leaders and authorities will say then to the Roman authorities, hey, this Jesus is trying to overthrow you people. This Jesus is trying to teach that it's not okay to obey the government. And the problem with that would have been the Romans were the government and they had authority and they exercised their authority, life and death, whenever they deemed it necessary, however they deemed it necessary. They had the power to say, we don't, want any traitors or we don't want any people who are trying to lead people into uh i don't know trying to overthrow us so they think they've got jesus trapped in this question 
But Jesus knew where they were coming from. And that's what he says in verse 23. How often in the Gospels do you have Jesus again seeing behind people's intentions? They see through the mask that people put up. And Jesus puts them in their rightful place. And he puts not only the scribes and the chief priests, but another thing he puts in its proper place is the government. This is not the point of this passage, but it is something that you can take away from it. He says in verse 24, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So he says, look, God has ordained government. God uses government for his purposes. When you look at Luke chapter 2, and you read the story where we get to the birth of Christ and why it happened, where it happened. It happened in Bethlehem because Caesar decreed that everyone should go be registered in his hometown. God uses government for his purposes. God has a plan and a purpose for government. God has appointed government. If, you're, if you disagree with that, you can take it up with Jesus here. You can take it up with Paul in Romans 13. Or you can take it up with Peter and 1 Peter 2. All of these places. And Romans 13 explicitly says, Paul says, pay taxes. Like that's half of what he says in the first several verses of chapter 13 of Romans. Pay your taxes. Pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. Which is the same thing that Jesus says here. Now, that's not the point, but you can take it away from it. Jesus puts government in their rightful place. He says, government has a place. God has ordained these things. And so just live with it, deal with it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. With sort of implicit in this response, in the second part, and probably the more important thing, if you're going to take away a side note from this, Jesus is asking, whose inscription is on you? Whose inscription is on you? He can say, and he does say explicitly, whose inscription is on the denarius? And the answer is Caesar's. But then the implied question is, as I read in one commentary this week, whose Inscription is on you, the listener, the hearer of this story, people in that crowd. Whose inscription is on you? And so if God's image is born through us as humans, his inscription is on us and we are to give to him all that is due to him. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but don't neglect giving to God the things that are God's. And you see there in verse 26, they're put in their place. And their place is one that, that marvels at his answers, that marvels at his wisdom. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. Again, you see how there it was in the presence of the people. They're just trying to do this so that the public opinion is swayed towards their own favor. If you're wanting to figure out why 
this story is in there, why they are doing these things, it's because they're hurt, because Jesus says, you are doing the things against God. You are doing things against God, and you shouldn't be, and it's not okay. And there's someone who is going to come and judge you. There is this stone that you will be crushed when he judges you. And he says, well, later on in our text, he says that he's explicitly that he is this stone. That he is this one who is the Lord. So the scribes, the chief priests, and the government, he puts in their rightful place, left marveling at his wisdom his wisdom proving that he has this authority to put everyone in the rightful place. Then we have the Sadducees in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, so just in case you're not immediately familiar with what they're referencing. Just a little bit of background. The Sadducees, for the most part, only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They only took these to be. And so that's why they are quoting or referencing Moses. Teacher, Moses wrote for us because Moses is the one who wrote those books. And so they deem Moses as the only one really worthy of listening to in the Old Testament. And so they say, hey, well, this is what Moses says. And what Moses says, according to Scripture, and they're right, is this idea of leveret marriage. This leveret marriage is where if I am in a family of a bunch of guys, and I'm the oldest, maybe, and I marry this lady, but I don't we don't have any children and maybe I die a year after we get married and there's no kids what is supposed to happen is my brother next in line probably the next oldest is supposed to come along and marry that same woman and any children that she bears are actually mine they are raised up in my name not in my brother's name even though he's the one who actually produced the child with my former wife or my widow. And so this is the idea of leveret marriage. Okay? And so this is something that was a usual and expected thing that happened in this culture in for Jews. Okay, so hopefully that's a little bit more clear to you. Now here's their question. So... There are seven brothers, verse 29. There are seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, what I didn't mention about the Sadducees is that the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. And this is why they ask him this question about the resurrection, because they're thinking, oh, we can catch Jesus because nowhere in the first five books of the Bible, nowhere in Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, 
is there explicit is there explicit mention about resurrection? There is in other parts of Scripture, like Isaiah 26, being one. There are explicit places in the Old Testament where it talks about resurrection, but in the first five books there isn't according to them. And so they ask Jesus this question and say, hey, we're not really sure you know what you're talking about because we think we're right. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe these things and teach the things that we're teaching. And so how does Jesus respond? Again, with more wisdom, biblical wisdom. Verse 34, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead Neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, and this is what we're going to focus on here, verse 37 and 38. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So Jesus, in his wisdom, in his biblical wisdom, shows that even in the passage of the burning bush, when Moses is confronted with this bush that's randomly on fire, but it's not being consumed, and he has this conversation with God, and he says, I need to know who you are. Who am I supposed to tell Israel who you are? Who are you? And God says, I am. And he says, I am the God. I currently am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, there are two ways to take this. And the way that Jesus is referring to us to be able to understand what God is talking about when he tells that to Moses is that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are all alive currently. It's not that they faked their death and somehow have lived thousands of years. No, it's that they have been raised from the dead. It's that they are alive with God in his presence. And so there is a resurrection. Otherwise, how in the world could God be able to say that he is currently the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Now, the other way that you can take this, and it works well together still, is that God is outside of time. He's inside and outside of time all at the same time. Maybe that makes sense. <laughs> he's all places. If he's all places at once, usually when we think of that, usually when I think of that, when I think of God being everywhere, I think God is everywhere in this moment. That's what my mind immediately goes to. But really, God is everywhere at all time. Like he sits over time and he is always there in every moment. And so he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because to God, th this isn't just a past memory. This isn't something that happened 3,000 years ago. This is current to God because he is in every moment at all times, which is just a strange thought to have. But it's true of him. And so God, but the more important aspect is this idea of resurrection. That God is the God of the living, for all live to him. So those who 
follow after him, those who listen to him, those who hear his voice and respond, those who recognize God for who he is and says, oh, I bear God's image. God has created me. I owe all things to God. I will now live in faith to him that he knows what is best for me. Those are the ones who live to him. And so what happens then at this point? It's kind of interesting. Verse 39. We have been talking with the Sadducees, but then, verse 39, then some of the scribes, so back to our first group, then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. The scribes probably would have said this because they did not believe like the Sadducees believed. And so they think, oh yeah, we just got one, the Sadducees just got one-upped. And so that makes us look better. And so they say, hey, Jesus, hey, we appreciate you saying that about those people, right? A common enemy will kind of, you know, help a couple people unite together, even if just for a period of time. And that's what's happened here. The scribes say, hey, Jesus, thanks, man. All right. You've spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. But then Jesus, in verse 41, talks again to them. To the scribes, I think. It says, how can they say, or maybe he says this to the Sadducees about the scribes. He says to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So it was common knowledge for all parties to know that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be a son of David, which is part of the reason why we have the genealogies that we have in Luke chapter 3. It's part of the reason why we have it shown in Luke chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem because Joseph was of the lineage of David, and David, his town was Bethlehem. That's why Christ was born there. So if the Christ is David's son... How can it be that someone who is under you is above you? How does this make any sense? And how it makes sense is this quote from Psalm 110. David himself says in the book of Psalms, there verse 42, The Lord said to my Lord. Now, David is writing this, so David is saying, The Lord, so God, said to my Lord. So either way, these two other people, these two Lord figures, two different figures, and they're both above David. So David is saying, the Lord is saying to my Lord. How can it be that the Christ is David's son if David himself says that there are two above me, the Lord, and then what Jesus is referencing is the Christ? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see how this relates to the parable, how it ended in chapter 20, verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a reference to that. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is saying, how can this be? unless there is authority that this Christ has, even over David, that he has this glory and this majesty, this power, 
this divinity. David thus calls him Lord. And the position that this Lord is in is sitting at the right hand of God and all of his enemies are going to be his footstool. I mean, I don't know if, you know, but you just imagine when you rest your feet on something, that's a show of dominance. I have conquered this couch, this lazy boy. It's a little more than that. I mean, it's the idea of like someone is on their knees because my foot is resting on them. They're on the ground because I have conquered them. They are either dead or just sitting there half lifeless because I've crushed them. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus has authority and scripture proves it. And that's where it's important for us to see how this isn't, it's not even just Jesus' wisdom, but it's the biblical account themselves. It's the Bible that says Jesus has this authority to put everyone in the rightful place. So Jesus puts the scribes and the chief priests in the rightful place, the government in the rightful place, the Sadducees. He says there is a resurrection. Like even Moses talks about it. So get on the right page. Realize how you are teaching in error. And then the scribes are like, yeah, Jesus, way to go. And he says, whoa, 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 I'm not done with you yet. And he's especially not done with them. Verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Ouch. Jesus, as he did in our first little story, sees beyond the pretense. And many of us have false pretenses that we hide behind. We try to make ourselves look good in the presence and in the eyes of other people. This is what the religious leaders were all about in Jesus' own time. And it's what many of us are all about, sometimes unknowingly, sometimes knowingly, in our own time. We are content to have all of the good and nice things. We like to walk around and have people give us titles. We like to put ourselves in a position where people see all of our good deeds and give us glory and honor and say, wow, you're such a nice guy. Oh, you're such a giver. You've done so much for this town. Oh, you've done so much for this county. You've done so much for this world. You've done so much for this family. We like to receive praise. We like for people to look at us and say, now there's someone. One day when I grow up, I'm going to be like him. I want to be like her. 
We want people to say that about us because we want the recognition. And Jesus saw this in the lives of the scribes. They liked to walk around in long robes, which just signified how religious they were, how much of the law they memorized, how much they knew, how good their teachings were, the positions that they had, how chief they were among the priests. Love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts. All of these say, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I have done. Look at what I have accomplished in my life. Honor me. Respect me. They try to take more than what is rightfully due to them. And in the process, they are taking away from what is due to God. They asked Jesus this question in our first passage in, chapter, in verses 19 through 26. Is it lawful to give Caesar the tax? Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Again, it comes back to this idea. You can give people what's due to them, but if God is never getting what's due to him, we've all missed the point. We've all missed the point if we never submit ourselves to who Christ is, especially and this is what this gets back to. This isn't just this generic, you need to worship and obey God. This is a specific and explicit, Christ is the one who has the authority. Christ is the one who has been written about. Christ is the one who is to be listened to. Christ is liked by the crowds rightfully because he teaches the way of God truthfully honestly. There is no false pretense in Christ. But recognize a false pretense when you see it. And recognize as well a true and honest heart, a faithful, dependent heart, like in chapter 21 verses 1 through 4 as we wrap up. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. You can read the widow's offering and you can take this little thing out of context. You can take all of what we have just read out of context. You can take each story individually and say, oh, well, see, this story says we should pay taxes. And this story says government, blah, blah, blah. And this story says, oh, we just need to believe in a resurrection. Oh, this story says we just need to be like the poor widow. In context Maybe we can see now just how it doesn't take self-promotion in order for God to truly see our hearts and our intentions. It doesn't take us being seen by everyone for God to recognize our hearts, to recognize whether or not we are depending on him or whether or not we are depending on 
the popular opinion of the day and what people think about us in this world. What's important is that, like this widow, she's putting all of her trust in God. She is giving all that she has to live on. Now, that's true dependence. That's true faith. This is what Christ is looking for, and this is what Christ shows his disciples. And he said, look, hey, come here. Take a look at this lady. She can't even get around. She can't fend for herself. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't have a source of income. She's dependent on everybody else. But who she shows she is most dependent on is God, because what she has, she gives back to him. Jesus puts all of us in our rightful place. He puts the scribes, the chief priests, in their rightful place, shows them to be self-satisfying, self-seeking, self-aggrandizing, smug, pretentious, no-good religious leaders. He shows, he shows the Sadducees to be just wrong about their view of Scripture. He shows the scribes not recognizing who he is and that it's going to be their judgment, their downfall. He shows himself to be the Christ. He shows himself to be the one who has authority through his wisdom, through Old Testament scripture. He shows people like this poor widow who extends faith. He shows her to be the one out of all of these people and all of these stories to be the point of emphasis, the one who no one else would have even had a second glance at, says, learn something from her. She depends on God in all things. And it shows by her giving back all that she has to God. And so I could sit here and say, and some people do stand up and say, give all your money to the church. Give all your money back to God and see what he can do. And there's an element of truth to such things. But that's not what this scripture is saying, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm not here to challenge you to give all that you have to the church or to give all that you have to God and your money. But what we have to recognize from these verses this morning is that everything that we have is God's in the first place. And so if we act like it's ours to choose what to do with, that we can spend it on ourselves or that we can do what we want with it without running it through the lens of, I am an image bearer of God. I am a child of God as I have believed that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, that he has paid the debt that I owed, that he has lived a life without sin, the life that I did not live, and that he, he paid the price for me on the cross, that I can 
and that I should surrender all to him, that I should put all of these things at his disposal because I am to render to God the things that are God's, and if I am wholly God's, then all that I have is his. And I am willing, like this poor widow, to express it in all facets of my life, not just in how I give my tithes or offerings, but in how I live my life and how I'm not trying to satisfy myself and how I'm not trying to have people look at me and say, oh, look at him. Oh, look at her. It's, hey, I want to, people to see my good deeds and to give glory to God. I want people to see my love that I have for others and say, the love of God is in him because God is worthy. This is what these verses are talking about. Many people choose to promote themselves. Will we be ones who promote God above all else and in all else? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these texts, these verses, these stories that all have all been put together. I pray that you would help us to be a people who recognize it's not about it's not about us. It's about you, God. It's about who you are and what you have done, especially through Christ. So help us to recognize him for who he truly is and help us to be a people who respond by giving it all back to you, our whole lives, all of what we possess, all of our thoughts, all of our intentions to bring glory and honor to you, to your name, that others might see and hear and understand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.